Poised for Exit is a show for business owners who want to achieve a successful exit based on their own terms. Your business exit will likely be the biggest financial transaction of your life, and for most, you'll have one shot at doing it right. The topics and guests we feature and the stories they share will provide valuable ideas and strategies to improve operations and grow enterprise value so you can achieve the best possible exit outcome. Now here's your host, award-winning certified exit planning advisor, Julie Keys. Welcome everyone to Poised for Exit, the exit planning podcast show. Today's guest is certified in forensic accounting, business valuation, and fraud, and serves as an expert witness when his expertise is needed in trials. We're going to be back shortly to hear from him, but first, let's hear from our show sponsors, Data Marketing, TrustPoint, Sunbelt Business Advisors, and JAK CPAs. What we see with many businesses is that they've never gotten marketing to work consistently, and the marketing they do doesn't meaningfully impact their bottom line. Data approaches it differently by partnering with clients for long-term, sustainable marketing solutions. They start with a consultative, crawl-walk-run approach that helps you scale your marketing efforts naturally. Data provides marketing for the long-time success of your business to tell your story in a compelling way and to make sure the value you bring is apparent to everyone. Go to data.com for more information. That's D-A-Y-T-A.com. TrustPoint will design and manage a 401k plan that fits your company's needs. They handle everything from record keeping and investments to employee education and ongoing administration. And they take on the highest level of fiduciary responsibility to ensure your 401k plan is compliant. You already have plenty to keep you up at night. Your 401k plan should not be one of them. Visit TrustPointInc.com for more details. You wouldn't go deep sea fishing without a guide or skydive without an instructor. So don't sell your business without a broker. Now is a great time to sell a business. Many are selling at a premium. Contact a business broker at sunbeltminnesota.com or call Sunbelt Business Advisors at 612-455-0880 and get a free confidential business valuation so you'll know what your business might be worth because selling your business is the biggest financial decision you may ever make. There is a record number of buyers looking for businesses right now. It is a seller's market. You could list, sell, and get more for your business now and start the next successful chapter of your life. Call 612-455-0880 today or visit sunbeltminnesota.com. Minnesota's largest seller of companies. 612-455-0880, sunbeltminnesota.com. Many business owners planning a business transition often feel overwhelmed and don't know where to start. I'm Kyla Hansen, a partner at JAK CPAs. We can guide you to make sense of the numbers and the tax pieces of your transition. Leaving your business successfully takes time, so contact us today to discuss your situation. Visit our website at www.jakcpa.com. Hello, everyone. We are here today with Ryan Streetmater, who is the Senior Manager at Schechter Duck and Cantor CPAs, also known as SDK. Ryan, been wanting to have you on the show for a while. Welcome to Poise for Exit. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So glad you're here. Forensic accounting, holy crow. Before we dive into that and what that means and how you you know, work with business owners and the situations that you found yourself in, um, i just like to know, how'd you get here? Like, how did you get to, not here, to the studio, but <laughs> <laughs> sure. how, how did you get into this role? 
Yeah, so I was born and raised in the Twin Cities area, uh, went to college in Ohio and started off in public accounting right out of school uh, as an external auditor and did that for about six years. Took a course on uh, becoming a certified fraud examiner, mm-hmm. found that very appealing to me, so I immediately dove right in and I've been doing that full time for about 19 years. Wow. So certified fraud examiner and so what does that look like from... Um, you know, privately held business lens? Well, let's take a step back and think about what forensic accounting and a certified fraud examiner is. That makes Uh, sense. So forensic is a term that's used for, used in or by the court of law. Mm -hmm. So generally forensic accounting is the use of professional accounting skills in matters involving potential or actual civil and criminal litigation. So practically, that means that forensic accountants separate themselves from traditional accountants with specialized training and experience, heightened professional skepticism, and an understanding of the basic legal framework. I consider it accounting with a dash of law. For sure. And in litigation, this allows the expert opinions of forensic accountants to withstand scrutiny. For sure. And the way I look at it, forensic accounting is... As exciting as it can get. Oh, I can't even imagine. So, uh, you know, I'm just kind of thinking of CSI, right? I, I People probably ask you that all the time. And, you know, does accounting ever come into the, the casework that they work on, right? But um, I had one person I come be- up to me and ask me if, uh, if it was like uh, going through dead people's wallets. I bet sometimes it is. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was that exciting. You but said it there was a splash <laughs> of law involved, so. <laughs> it's as exciting as accounting can get. How about right, that? right, right. Wow. So how do you help business owners? Tell, tell me about how this all um, you know, comes together. How do you weave that in? Sure. So my work, I work with buyers and sellers, both pre- and post-transition. Mm. Uh, for purposes of um, this podcast, I'm going to be talking about the uh, working with the business owner, um, both pre-close and post-close. So before the transition, I work on uh, de-risking the business with the business owner, and then uh, after close, assisting the business owner in disputes. In my experience, once a deal has been closed, the advisors that the seller used, they kind of go on to the next deal, and oftentimes the seller's left hanging without Mm. good advisors. Mm. Uh, So that's where we can step in and be the... Um, shining night here and right. uh, take over and really be their advisor to get through a difficult time. Well, I understand that post close, there are, obviously there's a, a, you know numerous situations that can come up, right? But as far as post close disputes, I understand the number is quite high. Um, is that just because of the times we're in, or uh, maybe you could just share a little a uh, little bit of what you know on that and a little bit of light around that because I had no idea. I heard like a high number and I don't even want to say what it is. Yeah. And I don't know the number either. Mm. Uh, I have an unusual experience in that I only see the disputes for the most part Got on it. a post close. Mm-hmm. I don't hear about the success stories. Mm-hmm. Those don't come across my desk. Right. Uh, so I often tell people, I don't know what a good deal looks like, but if I look at a purchase agreement, I know what a bad one looks like. Mm. So you're super helpful on the front end, right? Like you said, pre and post. And so you're, you're applying as much preventative medicine as possible. 
by just dissecting things with a fine-tooth comb. How does that differ then from what the attorney's doing, the M&A lawyers? Well, so I do have to stay in my lane, and I think about it from a financial perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, one thing that we can do is we can perform a fraud risk assessment, mm. uh, and that's looking for gaps in internal controls. The Association of Certified Fraud Examiners issues a report on fraud every year, and routinely, 90% of fraud is misappropriation of assets, theft of assets. Mm-hmm. And 90% of those thefts relate to cash. So it's vital to have good internal control systems in place for your cash disbursements and cash receipt cycles. Hmm. And so you're examining that on behalf of the seller. Like you said, you wanted to help de-risk. So if there's a red flag that comes up you know, during due diligence or even prior to that, uh, then you could save them a lot of pain and suffering by saying, hey, we need to fix this before we go to the closing table. That's right. And obviously, the earlier you know these things, the better. Right. But they don't always pick up the phone and call people like you until there's a red flag or a triggering event. Correct. I equate Mm -hmm. it to when you are buying or selling a car or a home. Uh, Those items usually have the most value when you buy or when you sell and Mm. not in between. And unfortunately, I don't think business owners do a good enough job of doing a, uh, you know, for example, if you're selling your house, how often do you get an inspection done proactively to fix all of the issues? And that's kind of the way I look at it as what we can do for business owners. That is so brilliant. I absolutely love that. I mean, it's kind of like the work that I do, but I'm doing it from a high level and examining all of the areas of the business and then bringing in specialists like you when we feel like we really have a situation, right, that needs immediate attention. And it's all about eliminating risk as much as possible so that we don't have all of these issues after the closing. So give us an example of what that looks like on your end. You know, you kind of alluded to it, you know, you said on the financial side, but maybe there's a story that you could share that kind of illustrates what that looks like pre-close. So one example I can give is I spoke with a business owner some time ago, and they had mentioned to me in passing, it was a different type of engagement I was working on, but they had mentioned that they were interested in selling their business in the future. And so I said, well, how far along are you in the process? And they said, well, we really haven't started so, okay, well, Perfect. one thing that we can do, and I brought up some options, and the one idea that really resonated in my mind was, well, have you considered getting a business valuation done? It's very important to know approximately what mm-hmm. your business may be worth. And he said, oh, I don't want to do any of that yet. I'm not looking to sell my business for at least another one or two years. <laughs> okay. And I said, wow, you're already kind of behind the eight ball here. So you're very late in the game. So um, we worked together to get him in touch with some business advisors. Um, He ended up not selling for quite some time. Um, But, Mm. you know, the the cautionary tale there is, you know, make sure you get advisors Mm. involved early. Well, and he ended up not selling for quite some time because there was some preparation work that needed to occur and one to two years wasn't enough time, right? That's correct. Yeah, that's very common. And we need time to make sure that the business owner is familiar with their uh, transferable value of the business, something right. you are very f- you know, familiar with. Yes. Uh, no buyer is going to come in and pay the seller what they need to 
fulfill their lifestyle once they exit, right? So, really? <laughs> unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Dang it. Um, so we constantly uh, work with companies to make sure they understand how their their cash flow for the business. Mm-hmm. Um, usually we use EBITDA and then take some adjustments for owner's salary or other benefits, mm-hmm. et cetera. So they really know uh, what they're getting into for a potential acquisition. When you guys are doing uh, valuation work, do you have different levels of valuation? Like, say, for instance, I don't need a full-blown valuation. I just need, like, a baseline or a calculation. Um, just kind of know where I'm at today. I know I've got, you know, three or four years of ramp time that I have to work on my business. I just want to kind of know where my starting point is. So we can certainly help business owners with that. Mm-hmm. Um, this goes along with a little bit of a sales pitch for SDK. Uh we're forensic accountants. We're educated in the legal environment, and that's really where our bread and butter is. Mm. We really want to spend time in litigation. So we do everything in anticipation of litigation. There are certain instances maybe we're gifting shares to uh, from an owner to a family member uh, that's not litigation, and we will do those for our clients. But we don't necessarily want to be the cheapest, and we just want to be the best. Mm. Uh, so we don't. We oftentimes get requests for back of the envelope valuations, and we tend to shy away from those. Mm-hmm. Well, I think because of the focus, um, you know, on eliminating risk and, and anticipating litigation, I suppose. Well, and then do you work with uh, larger companies as well? Like, what size company do you normally work with? Uh, the bigger the company, the better. Um, mm-hmm. We don't really work with Fortune 500 companies, but we always mm-hmm. talk about how it's easier to bring in a large client as opposed to many smaller clients. We don't tend to have what we call annuity work, like the traditional accounting practices of mm-hmm. audit and tax, so you have to consistently bring in new projects. Mm-hmm. And so if you can bring in a larger company that takes up more of your time, that's easier than five smaller companies that take up the same amount of time. Sure. And I would imagine, too, that you collaborate a lot with other accounting firms on different projects and different types of services Absolutely, when you uh, need to, yeah. A great yeah. example is when we're working on a, when a business valuation is required, but the accounting records are a bit of a mess. Mm. We will oftentimes partner with another accounting firm where one will do the forensic accounting piece mm-hmm. up front. Yeah. get the records in good shape, mm-hmm. and then now we can perform a business valuation based on those better records. Sure, so you don't have the conflict then. Correct. Yeah, that makes sense. So I've been thinking of uh, some survey data. It's probably five years old, but the Exit Planning Institute did, and they do a lot of surveys. You know that, right? State of Owner Readiness is coming up here sure. in the Twin Cities. Actually, we're, we're collecting the data right now for those of you who are listening. And if you haven't taken the survey yet, please look for the, the link in the show notes so that you can take the survey. It's completely anonymous, but we really do need that information for our local market. Anyway, um, they've also done post-close surveys of business owners. And one uh, resounding um, result that came from that, that particular survey was that it was upwards of 70%, 70 to 75% of the owners surveyed profoundly regretted their decision to sell. Profoundly. Emphasis on that word, right? Yes. And, of course, you and I could probably sit here for a half an hour and talk about why. There's all kinds of reasons why we, we know what they are. But from your perspective and the work that you do, when we talk about post-close disputes, that would have to be right, right up there, right? At the top of the list. 100%. For sure. So maybe we could 
um, you could share a few stories that I think would be helpful for our listeners to hear because sometimes, you know, especially if there's an unusual one, um, that people would go, wow, I guess I didn't even think that would that could happen. But maybe it happens more often than we realize and we find out later when it's too late. Sure. Uh, let's start with the types of common disputes that may arise. Perfect. Uh, so first, the purchase price is likely to be subject to post-closing adjustments based mm. on certain financial metrics such as working capital or earnout provisions, and then disputes arise when there are disagreements over those calculations. Mm. Uh, you can mitigate the working capital disputes with wording in the purchase agreement. Uh, I usually don't see these, but you can implement de minimis thresholds where if there's a, a minor change from what was expected, then we'll just ignore it. Mm. Uh, you can also put limits on the adjustments. Uh, you can put a ceiling or a floor or a collar, which is both. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know I did, I worked on one post-close deal where it was a $24 million purchase price, and then the buyer came back with a $6 million proposed purchase price adjustment. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine that... It's a, kind of a chunk. It's a big chunk. And the threshold, uh, a floor or a ceiling in this case, would have been quite useful. Uh, but instead, oh. it, it went to litigation and there was mediation involved and it was very very expensive i bet it was yeah yeah and then earnouts i hate them yeah they have a place to bridge valuation between a motivated buyer and a motivated seller Mm -hmm. i think their best use tends to be in a non-financial metric setting such as like uh, the pharmaceutical industry where there's a big uh, payout if we get to FDA approval, and then that way the buyer is as motivated, if not more, than the seller. So their motivations are aligned. Um, One of my favorite snippets from court opinions involves earnouts. Where Mm. the quote is, and this was back in 2009, an earnout provision often converts today's disagreement over price into tomorrow's litigation over outcome. Sure. So the way I look at it is, if you're going to have an earnout ex- as a seller, expect to not get it, or expect litigation, or some sort of a dispute. Mm. So, I always recommend if you are going to do an earnout to bridge that gap, that it should be based on revenue. Oftentimes, we see it on gross profit or yeah. EBITDA or yeah. sometimes even net income. Right. And the further down the income statement you go, the more subject to manipulation it is. Right. As a matter of fact, as an accountant, uh, we think that there's even some interpretation in play for determining what revenue is. Sure. So it can only get worse from from there on. And actually, (laughs) pre-pandemic, the studies that I looked at showed that uh, revenue was actually the most commonly used metric which was 50 to 70% of the time, which actually surprised me because the ones that come across my desk are on EBITDA or net income or pre-tax income. Wow. And that's why they come across my desk. Of course. Because they're more subject to manipulation. Right. Yeah, I I don't know a whole lot about how to structure those, right? Because I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a CPA, but I do know that they should be tied to top line and not bottom line. And that's an early conversation that I have with, my clients, especially if they're 
in an industry or a company size where an earnout is likely. And so the earlier that you prepare them that that could happen, right, the better. Yeah. yeah, and one cautionary tale that really broke my heart was a woman was selling her business and wanted to help out the buyer who was internal, uh, who didn't have a lot of money. So that part of the purchase price was up front, part was in a note, and then mm-hmm. another part was contingent. And it was 75% of the pre-tax income for the following year. Mm. And she had... a. Uh, an amount in her head as to what that would equate to. And pre-tax income was usually about a million dollars. So she was looking for $750,000. Unfortunately, this is a cash basis taxpayer. And Mm. all of the wording in the purchase agreement was about being a tax, a cash basis taxpayer. And three weeks before the year was up, the buyer was aware of how much the net income was and then basically spent it down dollar for dollar, prepaying for all of the necessary items for the following year. And the pre-tax net income ended up being about $80,000. And unfortunately, there were no protections in the agreement about operating the business, um, you know, consistent with past practices. So it was a a struggle. And in those situations, we have to be part-time, you know, psychiatrists for some of our clients. Wow, no kidding. So maybe some recourse with whoever the council was that drafted the documents or? Potentially. I understand yeah. that it went that route, but then at that sure. point, we're usually um, you're, you're out, out of it, it at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And preventable, right? A hundred percent. Preventable. You know, you you and I are in professional services that super, um, you know, we, we we wear a lot of different hats, obviously, but super important that we collaborate and that we collaborate with really good advisors from different disciplines with different areas of expertise because it's so dependent upon our own relationship with our own clients when we refer people out. And I'm sure that that's, that holds true for you. You know, we're trying to do the best we can to have our clients back. Um, but collectively, I think when you have a really good team, you can dot the I's and cross the T's and not end up in the courtroom or right. at least, you know, a, more of a surety that you won't end up in the courtroom. That's right. No, uh, I've given presentations in the past on the benefits of collaboration with Mm -hmm. other advisors uh, and putting that team together. Um, Obviously, it's a bit self-serving, but um, it's for the best. The way I look at it is the ownership of your business is oftentimes your largest asset. Correct. Right. And that is not the place you want to skimp on costs. No. So... When I hear my clients in post-closed disputes, sellers of their business, crying in my office, and they're saying, I wish I had done this. I wish I hadn't cut corners there. And that's what I want to get across to the business owners who are getting ready to sell. They may think it won't happen to them, but Mm -hmm. it can. It can, yeah. Um, So let's talk a little bit about your expert witness services before we wrap up. Tell us about what that looks like. Sure. Uh, so again, in the in this environment of uh, the post-closed disputes, uh, I, I'm an expert witness in a lot of different categories, but uh, in the post-closed dispute mm-hmm. arena, I'm usually testifying on behalf of the seller uh, in uh, trying to enforce provisions in the agreement or prevent some strong arm from the buyer. Uh, 
that often happens when it's a smaller company. It's being acquired by a Fortune 500 company, and then those mm-hmm. large companies will really push down hard. And uh, as a matter of fact, the one example I gave before, where it was a $24 million deal and a $6 million proposed purchase price adjustment, ended up settling for about a uh, million dollars. Oh. But the so we thought that was a great result. The seller wasn't terribly pleased because it was a million dollars more that or less than they thought mm-hmm. they were going to get. Um, but we found out that there was some sort of a, a bonus tied to the amount of clawback, basically, for mm-hmm. the Fortune 500 company. And I've seen that in other deals where there is an incentive to try and get some of that purchase price adjustment. Hmm. Interesting. Any last minute like stories or situations that come to mind around that post-close dispute that you'd like to share real quick before we wrap up? Sure. We've seen an uptick in reps and warranties insurance. I heard that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're starting to see more of those indemnity claims come through. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the items I want to discuss with business owners uh, when they're preparing their deal is the wording is morphed over time in the agreements about generally accepted accounting principles. And usually they're worded now as follows. The company's financial statements are presented in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles applied on a consistent basis throughout all periods. And I don't know that the business owners really know what that means, you know, they think they're on gap. Um, they're probably on gap at the end of the year if they have audited financial statements, for example. But are they really on gap throughout all periods? Right. So when they're selling their business on November 17th mm-hmm. and they don't have year-end adjustments in there, but they're representing in the agreement that they mm-hmm. are, that their financial statements are on gap as of that time, and they really aren't. Sure. So that's something that uh, you have to keep in mind. The Gap versus consistency is the most hotly contested issue in post-close disputes. Mm. Gap is not black and white. It is definitely gray uh, and subject to interpretation. And it's depending on how the contract is worded, gap can trump consistency or consistency can trump gap. Hmm. Wow. Well, I guess it's best to take care of matters well in advance, right? As we normally talk about and and promote and tell our clients, you know, the earlier the better. So, uh, boy, we could really keep going on this. I have all kinds of different questions in my head for you, but I can't ask them right now, so we'll have to do it again. And, Ryan, I really appreciate you being on the show. Um, super interesting. I know we've been talking about doing this for a long time, so we finally made it happen. Yeah. So. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for sharing all your wisdom. For our listeners, we really appreciate you listening to the show, sharing, subscribing, following. Please join us again next time and have a great summer.